Hello, I'm Emily Hawthorne, a Middle East and North Africa analyst at RAIN. This podcast is brought to you by RAIN Worldview, the premier digital publication for objective geopolitical intelligence and analysis. Subscribe today at stratfor.com. This is the Essential Geopolitics Podcast from RAIN. I'm Emily Donahue. I read an article recently, the headline was something like, Putin is playing the long game in Ukraine and his intentions may not be clear for years. I wondered how that squares with what we know right now about Russia's operations at its border with Ukraine. Luckily, Matthew Orr is here. He's our resident expert on this topic. Welcome back to the podcast, Matthew. Thanks for having me, Emily. Matt, we spoke a couple of weeks ago about this crisis and how long it had been building. Our listeners can find all of our podcasts at Rain Worldview. But what's going on now? What's changed since we last spoke? Yeah, so a couple things have changed since we last spoke. Probably the biggest of them is that Russia's buildup near Ukraine has continued unabated. Uh, if when we last spoke on January 19th, there was about 60 battalion tactical groups, which is a, a Russian unit um, consisting of about 1,000 troops. Uh, if there was about 60 of them when we last spoke, uh, that number has grown to 80. Uh, and it's probably closer to something like 100 uh, if you uh, include the amount of Russian and separatist forces in, in the Donbass. Uh, and so that, that, that brings a, a total of something like uh, as many as 130,000 Russian troops um, particularly if you include things like uh, air and naval personnel. Uh, so Russia's buildup is continuing uh, unabated, and that's exactly what we expected, given that there's these uh, Russian-Belarusian exercises uh, that are coming up. Uh, the, they, the active phases of the exercises actually started on February 10th, and they run until February 20th. Uh, those exercises provide um, the essentially the, the justification or excuse for a lot of the military buildup that we've been seeing, and presumably we would see exercises conclude, unless, of course, the Russians provide a new reason or a new excuse to have these forces near Ukraine. Uh, one possible way they could do this is a, a an agreement with the Belarusian military that's been in the works for a while, and it could be possible that new details of that agreement are unveiled that essentially allow for the semi-permanent stationing of Russian troops in Belarus, as an example. The other big change, of course, is that on the diplomatic track, we haven't seen really enough progress to make us think that Russia is inclined to significantly decrease tensions. So the U.S. Uh, issued its formal responses to Russia's demands for security guarantees. The U.S. basically said that, you know, we will talk to you about certain issues, uh, ones that Russia dismissed as secondary, things like arms control and uh, incident avoidance measures on the air and sea uh, and controls on exercises, transparency measures, things like that. But we didn't see any willingness by the U.S. or NATO to discuss essentially uh, Russia's biggest demands, which uh, revolve around uh, the current tensions in Ukraine. Matthew, a far-fetched question perhaps, but does anyone actually understand what Vladimir Putin really wants and how he thinks he will get it? Yeah, this is the kind of the question that everybody's trying to answer <laughs> currently. It's essentially clear that um, what Putin really wants at this point is Ukrainian neutrality. Basically, he wants a political decision, a political solution blocking Ukraine uh, from joining NATO, preferably in the very long term. So basically, R Russia's other security demands that it wanted, uh, the things that I mentioned uh, uh, answering your previous question, uh, it's clear that the U.S. and NATO are willing to work with Russia on, on those issues. And so 
and and basically the, the U.S. was willing to give concessions in those areas. Remember that you know just a few years ago the U.S. and NATO didn't want to discuss, and the U.S. certainly didn't want to con- uh, discuss arms control um, uh, with Russia. But now they are. But with regards to Ukraine, uh, it's still this. We're still in the same dynamic. Russia really wants. Uh, Putin really wants. Ukrainian neutrality ensured in some way. And there's basically two ways that he thinks he can get that. Uh, The first way would be through a political decision by NATO. Basically, this is something like a moratorium on new NATO members for a long period, say 20, 25 years, which is something that's been discussed. Uh, It could be the form of a uh, a decision by uh, separate members of the alliance, for example, uh, authoritative ones like France or Germany, to unilaterally uh, say that they will block uh, the the possibility of Ukrainian NATO membership um, due to uh, other security arrangements and agreements with Russia, uh, or or it could take uh, another form like uh, some kind of uh, political statement uh, by uh, the NATO alliance uh, regarding its future plans for Ukraine. Uh, essentially, um, if it doesn't uh, formally close the open door policy, uh, basically some sort of decision that would likely be. Uh, taken during the, the the next NATO summit, which runs from the 29th to the 30th of June, um, basically re- reframing the alliance's relationship towards Russia. The other way that Russia could at- achieve Ukrainian neutrality would be through uh, the realization of the Minsk agreements according to the interpretation pushed by Moscow and the Donbass separatists. So basically the idea there is that uh, they interpret the form of, st- of strong autonomy that would be granted to Donbass uh, republics, these independent regions of Ukraine that waged a low-scale war in the east of the country since 2014. As part of their reintegration in Ukraine, they would get the right to block major foreign policy decisions um, for the country, things like membership and alliances uh, and so on. And so those are essentially the two paths that Putin is thinking about and looking for. And to be quite honest, uh, he doesn't necessarily really care, you know, which one is the one that ultimately results in Ukrainian NATO membership being blocked. Uh, All he cares about is that that result is achieved in a, a way strong enough for Putin to eventually leave the presidency and say, you know, I I reached uh, a stable kind of state affairs. I finished this uh, business and I'm not leaving uh, such a, a major unresolved issue to a potential uh, successor. I find it hard to believe that any member of NATO would go so far as to give a proclamation that it would block uh, any new member from joining. Doesn't that actually go against the whole purpose of NATO. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Such a declaration or such a major concession would cause catastrophic and probably irreparable damage to the alliance. Uh, and that's would, what he wants, right? And that's and that's what he wants, uh, as it would split the alliance between eastern me- uh, members and western members. Um, but again, this 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 view is not particularly super um, outside of the ordinary. For example, just in the head of the Finnish Parliament's Foreign Affairs Committee said that a Western politician or somebody should, like Macron, should say that they will block Ukrainian NATO membership if that's what it takes to stop a major war uh, in Europe. And so, you know, of course, the Russians see, you know, steps like that and they go, oh my gosh, we're already starting to have an effect on the political discourse in Europe. And maybe eventually with long-term continued pressure, could essentially become more likely in the future as we move the Overton window, if you will, of what's the conception of NATO and um, what, what's the future of security in Europe. Matthew, I know that I know that rain analysts are constantly laying out and debating possible geopolitical scenarios. 
What are you thinking about how things could play out here short and maybe a little bit longer term? Yeah, that's really the key question. I think that the most likely scenario is one where Russia basically says, um, okay, fine, you didn't satisfy our biggest demands, but um, you know neither of the paths that we've laid out have necessarily been fully closed. And so you know we will keep the diplomatic track open um, even as we uh, largely maintain leverage and say, well, we have to take certain response measures if you're not going to satisfy uh, our demands. So, uh, you know, Russia could do all kinds of things to maintain tensions. This would be, you know, things in arms control, things like continued drills and troop deployments to threatening areas near Ukraine and NATO. Um, but it'd also probably take diplomatic steps, uh, basically, um, you know, uh, uh, saying that the, the, the European security framework needs major adjustments if you're not going to satisfy um, these demands. And so we think that, um, you know, the, 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 the concessions that Putin has already gotten um, uh, will essentially uh, lead the Russians to, to, to realize that uh, other options for escalation um, are unnecessarily costly um, and to essentially not take those routes. But if Russia decides to escalate more, we think that the really next phase of escalation would be a significant escalation of the Donbass conflict, which has raged in Ukraine since 2014. The idea there would be that the Donbass separatists would likely use some kind of major incident, likely a false flag attack uh, with mass civilian casualties to justify uh, a renewed uh, separatist offensive in the area that would seek to probably seize additional territory for the self-declared republics. And this would do two things. Um, firstly, it would be uh, massively destabilizing to Ukraine uh, and would send the country into panic because it would do the second thing, which is it would signal Russia's ability to essentially intervene in this conflict in a massive way, i.e. through a, an invasion of Ukraine, without Russia having to actually follow through with the, the very costly uh, invasion. And so this would send fear into European capitals. And then the idea is that, you know, France, Germany, and the U.S. would then start pressuring Kiev to enact the Minsk agreements on terms acceptable to Moscow as essentially the only way to prevent a Russian invasion or a, a long-term continuation of conflict. The, the next scenario is, is indeed a major Russian military operation against uh, Ukraine. This could take several forms, but essentially the most likely form is an attempt to uh, seize large pieces of Ukraine and set up a, a puppet uh, government that would be uh, loyal loyal to Moscow. Uh, this is an extremely high cost uh, step because of the, the the sanctions that the West has promised on Russia, uh, and there's all kinds of indications that, um, despite the the con the confidence uh, often exuded by Russian officials, that this would be extremely um, costly for Moscow's economy and technological development in the long term and comes with all kinds of uh, political risks. And so we think it's doubtful that they resort to this. The final scenario is, is some kind of appeasement or concession scenario where, again, faced with scenarios similar to the previous ones, Western leaders basically become convinced that they should indeed um, give Moscow additional concessions because uh, the, the the results of that will be less damaging than a, a Russian uh, military action against Ukraine. And so basically the West uh, caves and gives some of the things that I mentioned earlier, things like a moratorium on new NATO members, uh, a political declaration that, uh, say, France or Germany will not or will block Ukrainian NATO membership, things like that. So th those are kind of the, the most likely scenarios uh, that, we, that we're looking at, uh, basically in, in order of decreasing 
likelihood. But I think the real long-term takeaway is that these tensions will not just disappear. Russia, uh, if it does not get what it wants, it is prepared to take the steps necessary to make a lot of the tension and possibly hysteria that has really uh, gone through the West semi-permanent. It looks like we're, we're kind of set for this conflict to linger and to not necessarily fully die down, even if this acute phase eventually passes. That is so interesting, Matthew. Thanks so much for that analysis. Sure thing. Matthew Orr is a Eurasia analyst with RAIN. Whether you're watching developments about Ukraine or any country, RAIN Worldview is the go-to source for comprehensive geopolitical news, analysis, and intelligence. Try us out. We're offering a special rate right now. Find out more at stratfor.com. That's stratfor.com. Looking forward to having you. I'm Emily Donahue, and thanks for listening.